0: Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You guys have probably realized uh, by now it's my custom to preach series of messages. Every once in a while I have what I call a one-of, and I'll preach that. But most of the time I like to take a topic and and work through it. We just finished the eight-message series on God's unusual ways. And uh, last Sunday. So this Sunday I'm going to begin a new series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to use the, the text of First John, excuse me, of First uh, Corinthians 12 as my roadmap, and we'll see where it takes us. And so this morning to start, I want to give an overview uh, to the topic as a means of introduction to the series. And my hope is to answer three questions. The first is who is Paul writing to? Um, why is Paul writing this letter, and what does it mean for us? In the coming weeks, I'll take a look at the nine gifts of the Spirit listed in verses 8 to 10 of First Corinthians 12, which are wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in different kinds of tongues, the interpretation of tongues, as well as uh, the gifts of apostle, teacher, helps, and guidance from verses uh, from verse 28. So we could be on this topic for a while. I'm not sure if I'll get through one or two of the gifts each week. We'll see how it goes. I, um, for those of you who have been to my house, I've got lots of books, right? And so I was having fun yesterday, digging around, trying to hunt out materials. I got all this stuff, all these uh, materials that I gathered from the vineyard back in the 80s, in the, in the late 80s. And uh, boy, I just found like, it was like finding gold. It was like, oh my goodness, stuff on on healing and the gifts of the Spirit. So, I don't know. You may not be excited, but I'm really excited about, about doing this over the next few weeks. So, we'll be digging into this. So, if you're, if you're in 1 Corinthians 12, follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. This is what Paul writes. He says, Now, about the gifts of the spirits, uh, the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or another you were influenced and led astray into mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of Jesus, by the Spirit of God, says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the Spirit, to another gifts of healing. By that one spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between, between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each just as he determines. So I thank you for the rich truth that's in your word this morning. Lord, there's so much there. <laughs> I pray that you help us to glean the best parts, and Lord, I ask that you would um, that you would so work in our minds and in our spirits that this truth would change us and to make us be more like Jesus. Amen. So, who, who's Paul writing to? Now, he's writing to the church in Corinth. The beginning of the letter, chapter one, uh, verse one. Uh, to three, this is what Paul writes. He says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ by Jesus, by the will of God, and our brother Sostanus to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their Lord now is grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his introduction uh, to the letter. Um, and he mentions a friend of his, Sustanus. He's, some, he's a friend of Paul, an associate, uh, a Christian brother. Um, some commentators believe that he's the same Sustanus who's mentioned in Acts 18 as a synagogue leader. Um, I don't know. I think it's a little bit hard to make that hard, solid connecting of the dots. It could be the same guy. But my research says that the name Sosthenes was a pretty common name. It would be like John or Tom. You know, there's lots of people with that name. Uh, back then. It's possible also that Sustanus was, was Paul's scribe, that he was the guy who was you know, taking dictation. So Paul's writing the letter and he's writing it to the church uh, in Corinth, just in case there might be any confusion. Paul's writing to this group of people, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing to the church in Corinth. He's making that very clear. So what about Corinth? Corinth is, is a famous Greek city about 40 miles or 65 kilometers west of Athens. Corinth was one of the, one of the great uh, cities of the ancient world. It was prosperous. It was busy. It was growing. Um, it had a rich ethnic mix. It was a center for sports and for government. It was a center for the military and for business. It it was probably a really good place to plant a church. There's lots going on there. And the Corinthians were famous. They were very well known. And what they were known for was partying. These people could party like nobody's business. They had a well-earned well-deserved reputation for their reckless pursuits of pleasure. They were famous for drunkenness and for their loose sexual morals. There was even a term for it, if I can say this correctly, uh, Corinthia Zeo, Corinthia Mia. Uh, And the term meant, it was well-known in the Roman Empire, and it meant literally to live like a Corinthian. That's what it literally means. However... It was commonly understood that when you use that term, it meant to be sexually out of control. That's who these people are. To, to all the practice fornication. So this is a wild and crazy place. Kind of reminds me of Burning Man. I've told you guys some about Burning Man, this event that, you know, that i was part of a team that have done outreaches there. 50,000 people in the desert, you know, pagans are out there, and they're doing all kinds of wild and crazy things, and we're, we're loving on them. Current. Back in the day, it sounds a whole lot like the Burning Man thing. But this was everyday life for them. One Bible commentator sums up his analysis of Corinth by saying all of this evidence together suggests that Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. That's not a compliment. (laughs) Commentator Leon Morris describes Corinth as intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. So notice the contrast. Right? Of all places that God would choose to establish a church that would have two letters, two biblical letters written about. Amazing. Maybe just another example. I could probably fit this into the last series of God's unusual ways. Why would he pick Corinth? This place is a mess. I don't know. It makes me think of Luke eleven thirty-three, where Jesus says, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it'll be hidden, or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Light shines in darkness. From every description, from every commentator that I checked into, Corinth was a pretty dark place. And just like in today's world, darkness desperately needs to be light. If they... If we already have light, we don't need more light there, right? We need to get that light into dark places. Corinth needed the light, just like Burning Man needed the light. So it's interesting. It, as I was putting this together, it just kind of made me wonder. There's something reckless in the nature of these Corinthians. There's a willingness to risk, a willingness to venture outside the box, to buck the status quo. There's there seems to be something in, in who they are as a people that values exploring and experimenting. And that's what it was like to follow Jesus when he walked on the earth. I mean, talk about leaving all and following him, right? That wasn't safe. That wasn't the logical thing, the reasonable thing to do. You leave everything. Peter, James, and John, they left Peter, Andrew, James, John, they left their boats, the nets, everything, and they followed him. That's a reckless thing to do. That's an outside-the-box thing to do, right? It was risky. The 12 disciples later to be apostles, this was a radical group of guys. This was a risk-taking bunch of men. I got to tell you what, personally, I find those qualities admirable. I try to call my dad about once a week. Um, we uh, we have such we have a really good relationship now. I, I've shared stories where it was rocky when when I was a kid, but things have really developed nicely uh, over the years. And at this point, um, he he just loves when I call. It, it makes his whole day. So I try at least once a week to give him a call, and we'll talk about the Mets. And he's very upset about the way the Mets are playing right now. We'll <laughs> we'll talk about his favorite television programs or. We'll talk about food, anything he wants to talk about. It just makes him happy when his son calls. And so recently in one of our conversations, he asked me a, a question he's never asked me before. He said, he said, so who ministers to the minister? I said, that's, that's a good question, Dad. His, his brother, my uncle, is a Catholic priest. Uh, uncle Bob is a couple of years younger than my dad and comes and visits. My father's the only family he has. So he'll come and visit a few times a year, and I guess he was asking me this question really because he was concerned about his brother. Uncle Bob seemed like maybe life had been a little rough lately. Who ministers to the ministers? I said, Dad, that's a good question. And I told him that I have this group of pastors that I meet with on Tuesday mornings, and that's a really healthy group, that a group that really uh, focuses on relationship. Where When I go to that meeting, I'm not Pastor Tom, I'm just Tom, right? And it's just Bill, and it's just Andrew, and it's just Joel, we just... Friends meeting together share in life. That's a good place to, uh, I go to get ministered to. We minister to one another regularly on Tuesday mornings. It's life-giving for us. But I told them I also have two friends that I'll call on. If I need, if I need some godly wisdom, if I need to discern something, if I just need to talk something out, um, i got two friends. One is this, this gal, uh, Carmela. I've shared in my testimony that when I was 16 years old, she was the one who called the house to see if I was okay. And we've just we've been friends for thirty-seven years, and um, I was best man at her wedding. And she has a doctorate in psychology, but she knows me. We've been in, t- you know, there's something about having history with people, right? When you have history with people, you need less words because they know your heart, right? I don't have to explain every part about what I'm saying. I can just say a statement, and she understands. So she's one of my one of my most Uh, trusted friends, and when when I really need help, I can't see through the storm, I give her a call. And I have a a second friend, and I've mentioned him a few times. His name is Jim Driscoll. Jim is a really good friend of mine, very, very wise, extraordinarily gifted. And um, so maybe a year or so ago, a little bit longer than that, Nadine and I had taken a trip, and we got to spend some time with Jim and his wife, Mims, and we were in a restaurant having a meal, and we were... I remember telling him this story about my son, my son Tommy. And um, when my son moved to, when he moved from Washington to Los Angeles, my son works in television and movies, right? He's a, a set dresser. He's doing pretty good. He's been there about five or six years now, seven years. And he's doing really well. Uh, but when he, when he first went to go there, he, he had been away at school, went to art school to learn how to, had to do some of this stuff to get training in the industry. Came back home for a while. Saved some money. Wanted to be home about six months and then, and then moved to L.A. So I'm telling Jim this story where my son comes to me this one day and says, um, he says, Dad, he said, me and Chris, his, his partner, says we're going to move down to Los Angeles in two weeks. I'm like, oh, really? I said, um, do you have a job? He said, no. I said, oh. I said, do you have a place to live? He said, no. Like, oh. I said, you think it might be good <laughs> if you had a job and a place to live before you go down there? And so he's like, I don't know, he's about 21 at this point. And he looks at me, he says, Dad, you don't understand. I'm thinking, I don't understand. <laughs> You're going to move like 15 hours away or 16 hours away without a job, without a place to live. I'm the one that I understand. He said, Dad, we have a friend there. We're going to sleep on that floor. By the end of the week, we'll have a job. By the end of the excuse me, by the end of the week we'll have a place to live, by the end of the month we have a job. I've saved up, you know, I think it was $3,000. I'm thinking, oh my God, only $3,000 in LA. How long is this going to last? And I was like, I, I admired his adventurous spirit. He's going to go for it, right? And, um, and I told Nadine privately, I said, look, he's loading all this stuff in his car, he's going to drive down there. Worst case scenario, we send him gas money, he's still got his, his, his room here, he'll come back. Said, don't don't you know? <laughs> he went down there, slept on his friend's floor by the end of the week. They had jobs. By the end of the month, excuse me, by the end of the week, they had a place to live. By the end of the month, they had jobs. And he's lived there ever since. Yeah, I was telling Jim about how, how much zeal, how much passion my son has for the things he feels, he feels called to do. And, and how, um, as I've gotten older, I, I used to be just like that. I used to be really zealous you know, lots of zeal, not tempered with much wisdom, but as I've, as I've gotten older, as I've become mature, I've tempered my zeal with wisdom. And um, we went on and talked about other things, but at the end, Jim prayed for me. He said, Tom, I pray that you get back some of that zeal that your son has, that you get back some of that zeal that you had when you were younger, And I haven't forgotten that day. That's kind of stayed with me. I've realized that the older I get, and maybe some of you guys can relate to this, the stronger the gravitational pull towards safety. That the older I get, the stronger the pull towards safety. And I hate it. I did. I don't want to play it safe. Erwin McManus says, a quote from him says, we all know that to play it safe is to lose the game. I don't want to play it safe. I want to be wise, but I want to live a life of faith. I want to live a life of risk. I want to be like those 12 guys who were sitting around the table with Jesus that night. I believe that that gravitational pull needs to be continually resisted. You remember this, uh, this exchange in, the, in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Lucy asked Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe? I love Mr. Beaver's reply. He said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. Right? I love that. When did following Jesus become safe? When did it become risk-free? I'm not sure it was ever designed to be that. Maybe it's somewhere around the time when we traded living supernatural lives in the power of the Holy Spirit for an intellectual and academic faith. Maybe it's when we traded a Hebrew mindset for a Greek mindset. There's differences. The book that we read is coming from the perspective of a Hebrew mindset. That's who these people are but it's been translated over the centuries and filtered through very much a Greek mindset. Here are some differences. The Hebrew mindset sees relationship as the ultimate. The Greek sees knowledge as the ultimate. The Hebrew sees faith and trust as essential. The Greek mindset sees proof and empirical evidence as essential. The Hebrew mindset believes that faith sees belief as being relational and personal, where the Greek mindset looks at belief from an intellectual perspective that requires proof. Very different. The Hebrew focus is a relationship with God as Abba, where the Greek mindset would rather focus on the attributes and the characteristics of God. And it's the difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. I'm very concerned as a pastor that somehow this thing we call church has become an, something that we do up here in our heads as opposed to here in our hearts. If all God wanted to do was give us better information, His Son didn't have to come, right? The cross wasn't necessary. All that was necessary so that there could be intimacy. Actual, authentic, genuine, relational intimacy between us and our God. The Hebrew mindset appreciates mystery. The Greek mindset wants facts and knowledge only with very little tolerance tolerance for mystery. The Hebrew mindset believes in the supernatural, the unseen world, while the Greek believes only in what can be experienced with the senses. Understand that this book that we revere was given to us from the Hebrew mindset perspective. It would help us to be able to somehow adjust and switch out of the Greek. I think part of having a Greek mindset is what keeps us safe. It keeps God at arm's length. But if if we embrace a Hebraic approach to God, then it's heart to heart. It's much more risky. Like any relationship, when your heart's revealed, it's vastly more risky. you got to know your pastor loves that. I love that risk. I want more of that. Maybe you've seen this quote on Facebook. I'm not sure who wrote it. It says, Christianity started in Palestine as a fellowship. It moved to Greece and became a philosophy. It moved to Italy and became an institution. It moved to Europe and became a culture. It came to America and became an enterprise. That's sad. Boy, what, what a horrifically accurate indictment. I don't think we have to stay there. I remember pastoring a church in Washington, and I went away on a retreat with my elders. And we were praying about what God wanted to do in the future with the church. And the Lord spoke to me, and he, and he told me this. He says, he said, don't camp here. Take the high-risk option. That's what he said. Don't camp here. Take the high-risk option. The, the imagery I had was of a group of people climbing a mountain, and they found a the plateau. They'd gotten pretty high on this mountain, and they found the plateau. And it, it would have been a good place to camp and to settle. And some of that happens as, as we get older, right? I've slain my dragons. I've, I've climbed my mountains. That's not what Caleb did. That's not what Moses did. It's not what Abraham did, right? The church I pastored at the time, we'd had some success. We'd done some really cool things. It would have been a safe place to camp. I really felt like God was saying, don't camp here. Take the high risk options to go higher. That's what I think is the Hebrew mindset. That's what I think relationship with God's about is resisting that gravitational pull to safety and comfort. The Corinthians were vastly, just to a grand degree, they were open to the gifts of the Spirit. I think part of the culture and how they lived their lives on the dark side was an indication of their openness to the things on the light side. You guys ever hear, ever been to the church service where they did something called a fire tunnel? You know what a fire tunnel is? A few people? Not too many, huh? More of a charismatic Pentecostal thing. And so, what they would do is they would have people line up. There'd be a line in the front here, and then another line following them. And the people would put their hands up like this, and and the people would go, the other people would come between them. So, they're kind of like they're going through a tunnel of people. And they pray over them as the people go. Sometimes it just really whips things up in the spirit. I've seen it be really exciting. So, this one year, I'm out at Burning Man. There's no, except for us, there aren't too many other Christians out there. And the guy who's leading the team, this guy Rob Mazzer, a good friend of mine, he says, let's do a fire tunnel. We never did this before, Bernie, man. So we just go out in front of our camp, and there are thousands of people. We line up, and people are walking by. They're like, what are you doing? We're doing a fire tunnel. You want to go through? Sure, I want to go through. So they come, and they begin to, initially they begin to just run through the tunnel. And Rob says, well, we're going to do this a little bit different. So before people went through, he stopped them. He says, okay. And he says, are you ready? I said, yeah, I'm ready. He says, okay. Here's what he says to them. He says, open your spirit. And they would do this. They would make this physical reaction where they're opening their spirit. And their spirit would open. He said, now go through. And they were getting really, they were getting hammered by the Holy Spirit. Like that night I got saved 37 years ago. They would get, these people had, they had no box for this. It wasn't like they'd been to some charismatic church and they're mimicking what they'd seen happen in other places, God was just touching them. It was awesome. We did it for about an hour out there. rock people's world. I loved, I loved how easily open they are. We say, okay, now just close your eyes, close your eyes, now open your spirit, they'd open up. And they were open to everything. The good news is they were open to us, they were open to a lot of other bad things while they were there too. But they're more open than about 99% of the Christians I know. I've done ministry times where, man, trying to pray for somebody, it's like they're locked in a vault. There's like a safe wrapped around them. I couldn't get through with a sledgehammer. I'm like, open up. shields up, don't touch me. I'm like, dude, the burning man just said, open your spirit. They open right up. It's amazing what we're able to do. People are set free. People are touched. Reports we get back, they're like, I was never loved like this before. I've never seen light like this before. They'd seen, they'd seen dimmer lights in the spirit. They'd had spiritual encounters with lesser lights than our God. And when they experienced the real thing, the, the truth, it blew away anything else they'd ever seen. It was amazing. I think there's something about the Corinthians that are kind of like the people of Burning Man. There's an openness. Now, they were open to everything. It was a pagan culture. They had lots of gods. That's why Paul makes it clear. This... <laughs> All of these different gifts are not given by all different gods. They're all given by the one God. Because these guys have been open to everything. There's something in the Corinthians that I think was in Burning Man. And to be frank, I'd like to see a lot more of it here. Like, I'm not going to force it, but honestly, I'd like to see a lot more of it. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We are not living in the fullness of that freedom. I'm not. And I can tell you that you're not, whether you think you are or not. There's more. We have not exhausted the depths of what God has for us. Okay, back to Paul and his letter to Corinthians. Why is he writing this? The theme of, of 1 Corinthians is living a Christian lifestyle in a pagan society. What does spiritual freedom mean uh, to, to these new Christians? Especially when everyone around you is caught up in immorality and you're bombarded constantly by temptation. So the church in Corinth was struggling to sort out their newfound faith while living in a city overtaken with corruption and idolatry. Paul had planted uh, the church in Corinth. He'd spent about 18 months there during his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 18. And this letter is written probably three or four years after that. And, And this letter to the Corinthians is really in two parts. The first part is correction. The second part is instruction. Chapters 1 to 6, Paul's correcting problems in the, in the church. There's division. There's lawsuits between believers. There's sexual sin. Um, the overall spiritual immaturity. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapters 1 to 6. Chapter uh, 7 to 15, Paul is instructing the church in different areas concerning marriage. He's giving them instruction about the resurrection, about some questionable practices, Things like eating food that's been sacrificed to idols, he kind of covers some of that in the second half of the, of the letter, um, and he talks about public worship. And in that context of public worship, he includes chapter twelve on spiritual gifts, and then in chapter thirteen, the necessity of exercising those gifts in love. So after, a, so a few years after planting the church, Paul's receiving. He's getting letters from people, and they've got questions and, they have, and they've got concerns, and they're, they're sending him reports of problems. And so Paul writes this letter to, to confront and to correct and to instruct the Corinthians. So with that as an overview of chapter 12, let's take a look at uh, Corinthians. let's take a look at chapter 12. So chapter 12, verse one, spiritual gifts. He, he writes this in verse one, he says, "About the gifts of the spirits." excuse me, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. He doesn't want us to be uninformed. The New American Standard says unaware. King James Version says ignorant. The Amplified says misinformed. The Message takes a little different spin on it. He says I want you to be informed and knowledgeable. That's pretty pretty clear. There's something about the gifts of the Spirit that we need to have understanding about. So in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul begins his instruction concerning spiritual gifts. It's important to note that spiritual gifts are operating in the early church. Notice that there's no discussion here if the gifts are operating. Mm -hmm. They're operating. It's a common practice. It comes with the territory. There's no discussion whether or not they should be operating in the gifts. They operate in the gifts. This comes with the package. This is what church does in the first century church. Paul, uh, in verses 4 to 6, makes it very clarifies specifically who is the source of these gifts. He says it multiple times in multiple ways. So there's no mistake concerning the pagan gods in, in the culture of Corinth. All these gifts are from the one and same God. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but in all of them, and in everyone, it's the same God at work. And you see how he's clarifying. This is, this is the God. This is, this is Jesus. This is the spirit of Jesus. This is our Father. This is this God. It's not the other pagans that are part of your culture. All of these different gifts. Because there's something in their mindset that says, this pagan gives this gift. That pagan gives that gift. That pagan, God, gives another gift. Paul's trying to make it clear. All these gifts come from the one, the one true God. And then Paul goes on in verse 7 to explain why these gifts are given. So, if we want to explore spiritual gifts, this is important right here. Verse 7 is very important. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. There are manifestations of the Spirit given to each one for what purpose? For the common good, not for bad but for good, not for the individual's benefit, not for the individual's promotion or reputation, but for the good of the whole community, the whole church. So if the gifts are operating in the church and it's not for the common good, then we need to reexamine how those gifts are operating. Because if we're going to do it biblically, not only will the gifts operate, but it will be for the common good of the community in which the gifts are operating. I'm not misinterpreting that text, am I? That seems pretty clear. Paul expands on this value of the common good throughout the rest of chapter 12 and into chapter 13. One body, many parts, all working together. The word manifestation is an interesting word. That's a church word. You don't hear manifestation out in the world very often. right? If you're you know, with some buddies at work, you say the word manifestation, they're going to kind of look at you funny. In church, we, we've heard that term. What does it mean? I, I thought John Wimber had offered, a, I remember him sharing, uh, teaching once on this. He gave a great interpretation. It said manifestation, manifest, mani manifest, meaning hand, fest meaning festival. It said manifestation is the dancing hand of God. Manifestation, manifestation of the spirit is the dancing hand of God going across the room. He touches one person, they laugh; another person, they cry; another person, they shake; another person, they prophesy. It's the dancing hand of God. I like that. That's a good way to describe manifestation of the spirit. Amplified, instead of saying manifestation, says spiritual illumination. Now, let me take just a note here, just a little theological point. Manifestation doesn't mean God is suddenly more present. I know in the history of the vineyard, the term come Holy Spirit um, has a richness in our history. And it leaves us with a misunderstanding to think that God isn't here and we invite him to come, and then he comes. Well, that's not, that's not really accurate theologically. He's, he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's in all places at all times. And as believers, he lives within us. That's not like he left and he's coming back, right? Ephesians 3.17 says he lives within us. Hebrews 13.5 says that he'll never leave or forsake us. Matthew 28.20, Jesus says I'm always, that he's always with us. So a better understanding of The manifestation of the Spirit, rather than inviting, asking the Holy Spirit to come, would would be this. When the manifestations of the Spirit come, it becomes more apparent to us. Not that he comes any more or any less. He is. He always is. It's not him who changes his intensity of his presence, but us who change in our understanding or our sensitivity of his presence. God gives different gifts. Verses 8 to 10 gives a whole list to them that I referenced before. Verse 11 tells us that God distributes them as he determines. It's a God thing. He does it as he seems fit. Remember, his ways are not our ways. He knows better. It made me think of, you know, God gives gifts as he seems best. It's kind of like, I don't buy my own clothes anymore. I can't remember the last time Nadine let me buy my own clothes, Right? She buys me clothes that she seems that will fit me best. That's kind of like how God gives the spirit. When, when the kids were younger, I used to have a, a day a month with Tommy, a day a month with Lisa. We would just do father-son things, father-daughter things. I can't tell you how many times I'd walk out ready to leave the house with my daughter, and she'd look at me and she'd say, oh, no. <laughs> she says, Ma, <laughs> he can't dress like that. So for years, either my daughter or my, my wife would buy clothes to me as they, as they determined What they see best fits. That's how God gives gifts to us. Kind of like my wife and daughter dress on. Does that make sense? (laughs) Oh, no, you're not, she would look at me. I'm not going out with you like that. Ma, make him change. (laughs) Uh, I love her so In verses 12 to 26, which we didn't read today, Paul drives home the point that the gifts function together in the church like the parts of a human body. We need one another. More than that, like the parts of a body, we're dependent upon one another. So if you have spiritual gift that you can see in the spirit, you're the eyeball of the body. I'll tell you what, you still need an eyelid. You still need tear ducts. It would be really good if that eyeball was in a head that had a neck that could turn around. Because I don't care how high a mountain is. You take that eyeball, put it on a pinnacle of Mount Everest. All it could do is look in one direction. The eyeball needs the rest of the body. All the parts are important. Anybody ever stub the toe, right? right? That becomes the most important part of your body in that, in that instant. All the parts are necessary. So to sum up Paul's instructions concerning the gifts of the Spirit, he doesn't want us to be ignorant concerning the gifts. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the gifts. When the elders invited me to come and serve this church, one of the things they asked for is that I could help bring more of the activity of the gifts of the Spirit in the church. This is what I want to do. This series will be giving you instruction concerning that. He doesn't want us to be ignorant concerning the gifts. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the gifts. Paul tells us that it's the one true and same God. He's the only source of these gifts. That there's diversity in the gifts, but it's the same God. And that they're given for the good of the whole community. And they're given as God determines. And not only that, these gifts are interdependent on one another. So what does this mean for us? If the gifts of the Spirit operated in the early church, it's fair and it's biblical to say that they ought to operate now. Here and now. So to that end, we too ought not be ignorant concerning the gifts. In a group this size, I don't know, is there a hundred people here today? There ought to be the benefit, there ought to be benefits, there ought to be common good to our church for different gifts operating in our midst. It ought to be a benefit as we utilize the gifts of the Spirit. It ought to be a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, I know, because I have a relationship with you guys. Some of you guys have had bad experiences in the past. People done stupid things with the gifts of the Spirit. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I've been doing this for 37 years, and I don't have all the answers. But I believe that there's a right way to do this. If it's God who gives the gifts to the church, there got to be a right way to do this. I want to I find that right way. I want to find that right way that's really God, that's not man making stuff up, that's really life-giving, and it's the common good for the whole community. It's a biblical mandate that I can't shake. But here's the rub. How do we do it? As John Wimber used to say, how do we do the stuff? How do we do it here? How do we do it in this culture? How How do we do it at Charlottetown Community Church? How do we do it on Prince Edward Island? Well, there's three ways that it worked in my life. Number one is information. Did I get wise instruction? And I've gotten some wise instruction. I've met some amazingly gifted people, and and they've offered to me the wealth of, of their history and their experience. So wise instruction, I think, is part of how we get from you to that. What else? Impartation. From those who have more experience. Every time someone would come to my church who had elements of a relationship with God that I didn't experience, I wanted what they had. And I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I do know this. I mean, Jesus breathed on the disciples, and they got the Holy Spirit. The apostles laid hands on people, and they were baptized in the Spirit. There's a way, a transference, an impartation, for lack of a better word, that can happen. I've had people impart to me. I'd like to have some of those same people come and impart to you, and anything I have, you're welcome to if you want it. I'm happy. Freely I receive, freely give. So instruction, impartation is the second. And the third one is this. Exploration. Information, impartation, expo- exploration. This is the whole risk part that I spent so much time talking about earlier. At some point, man, if you want to walk on the water, you've got to get out of the boat. Right? At some point, there's a risk. And And because I know it's risky, that's why I spent the first months I was here talking about love. If we love one another, if we're convinced that the Father loves us, it becomes a safer environment to risk. It becomes a safer environment to fail. It becomes a safer environment to experiment and to explore and to learn new things. I think that's how it works. So this this series is a continuation of that process. Next week, I'll begin looking at at specific gifts listed in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I want more of you. I thank you for all that you've done in my life and poured into me for 37 years. But I know that there's more in you, and I want more of that in me. Well, I hunger for you. I thirst for you. Lord, I pray that that you would change my way of thinking, shift it from a Greek mindset to a Hebrew mindset. Would you do that, Lord? Would you do that in my friends? Lord, would you begin to disassemble the walls that we've built that keep you at a safe distance? Would you put within us I desire the risk, that we would not camp here, that we take the high-risk option, that we would resist the gravitational pull to safety. Lord, I pray that you would stir up passion, that you would stir up godly zeal, hunger for you, and then satisfy that, meet that need. Do it, Lord, even now, even now. Lord, what could you do with just a handful of us? What could happen if we were fully alive? Show us. Show us in this place. Thank you, Lord. So, is there anybody that has need today? Is anybody that need prayer today? If you need prayer for anything, would you just stand up? I don't want you to leave without getting prayer. Anybody else, you need prayer? If there's some circumstance, some situation... That you need prayer. I'm not going to make anybody else lay hands on you. We're just going to pray as a group. You don't have to tell anybody anything. God already knows. Anybody else you have need? Is there a physical need? Is there some type of, some, you know, work-related thing or financial thing? Is there a a spiritual need that you have today? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So, the rest of you guys, let's, let's pray for them. Lord, I thank you for my friends. Lord, I love these people. These are good people. And, and presented across the room, there's a variety of needs. Some of them are physical, some are spiritual, some are emotional. Lord, some are just the logistics of life. Some the problems are relational. Some people, bodies are broken and need to be whole. Lord, we pray for our friends today, whatever their need is. Lord, we ask that by the power of your spirit that you would touch them and that you would take everything that's out of order and that you would put it in your right order. Lord, we pray for our friends today that you would bless them. We ask for mercy and for grace upon their lives. Lord, we ask for favor on them. Lord, some of our friends here today, they've, they've suffered injustices. Bad things have been done and it's not their fault. So we ask you today, that you would grant them divine justice. Again, take what's out of order and put it back in right order. Bless our friends today. And, Lord, for all of us, I, would you just pour out your spirit? Lord, fill us up fresh and new with your spirit. I ask that you would stir up the gifts of the spirit in Charlottetown Community Church. Some of us, Lord, it's in there. It's down deep. Some of, some of it just needs, to, just needs to be stirred up again. Stir up the gifts. Stir them up in us, oh God. I pray for my friends, Lord, they have eyes to see and ears to hear. I ask that you would give them dreams and speak to them in the night. Speak to each of us, Lord, in ways that we recognize that it's you so that you take us to deeper places of relationship with you. I pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would know you better. Help us know you better, Lord. And Lord, there's screwy things going on in your church. I don't want that. I want the real deal. We want what's really you. No limits. No reservation. Would you do that in our midst? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Love you guys. Enjoy your Canada Day weekend. (laughs) I'll see you next Sunday. No, see you Saturday at the picnic. 11 o'clock in the cove.